Father, it's a grace of yours to be able to gather like this every Lord's Day, celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead and what that means about our victory over sin and death. Think about the early church making that transition to the first day of the week and probably remembering with every day that they gathered that Jesus' uh, victory over sin and death was imputed to them by faith, Lord. And so help us also to gather with that reality in mind, thankful for what Jesus has done for us. I pray, Lord, as we look at this parable, that we'd learn all the wonderful truths that you desire to be shared with us through it. Help me in rightly abiding your word. I pray that what I've labored over during the week is what you would have delivered to your people, which has been my request. But if there'd be anything else that isn't in my notes, bring that to mind to preach to them, Lord. And as I regularly pray, I do ask that you'd help us to remove distractions from our minds, just understand that the, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, desires to speak to us this morning. And with that in mind, Lord, we should be um, anxious in a godly anxiousness and anticipation about what you would say to us. Help that to be our, our hearts at this time and to be mindful to just prevent any distractions that would keep us from hearing from you, Lord. I pray for the sanctifying work that only your word can accomplish in our lives as we listen and as the scriptures wash over us. And again, I just thank you for the privilege of being here to worship you through scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is The Parable of the Vineyard Owner. The Parable of the Vineyard Owner. So on Sunday mornings, we've been working our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And we find ourselves at Luke 20, verse 11. We started this parable last week. We won't be able to finish it, but we'll get closer to the end of it this morning and then finish it next Sunday. Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, and Pete Fleming were the famous missionaries who tried to preach the gospel to the incredibly violent Alca Indians in Ecuador. It was well known that the Alcas had killed many people around them, including even the workers at a nearby oil company drilling site. The company had to close down the site because people were too afraid to work there. Jim Elliott and the other missionaries wanted to show the Alcas they were friendly. So Nate Saint, their pilot, he devised a way to lower a bucket. I believe he would fly in a circle, keeping the bucket in the center, would be lowered with supplies to the Indians on the ground while the missionaries flew overhead. They thought that this would win the Alcas trust while keeping the missionaries safe. They began dropping gifts to the Alcas while using an amplifier to speak friendly Alca phrases. After months, the Alcas put a gift in the bucket that the missionaries could bring up to the plane, and Jim and the other missionaries felt the time had come to meet the Alcas face to face. The five missionaries built a base on the beach a short distance from the village. After four days, an Alca man and two women appeared. The missionaries shared a meal with them, and Nate Saint took the man up for a flight in the plane. Later, two Alka women walked out of the jungle. Tragically, as the missionaries approached these women, a group of Alka warriors killed all five of these heroic men on January 8, 1956. But if you're familiar with this, you know that this isn't the end of the story. In less than two years, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, their daughter, Valerie Elliott, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, moved to the Alka village and continued trying to reach the Alcas. Many of them became Christians, and they're now a friendly tribe with some of the missionaries, including Nate Saint's son and his family, continuing to live among them. 
Now, this story came to mind because we see how dramatically God pursued the Alka Indians through Jim Elliott, the four missionaries with him, and then numerous family members of the missionaries. Now, while God might not pursue everyone as dramatically as he did the Alka Indians, he has been pursuing man since the fall. And this brings us to lesson one in your bulletins. Lesson one, God pursues people. God pursues people. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. One more time, Isaiah 59.2, Your sins or iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Now, let me just ask you something. Because we are the ones who sinned, or because we are the ones who caused the separation between us and God, who would you expect to be the pursuer? Or who would you expect to be responsible for pursuing or reconciling the relationship? I would think it would be on us. But instead, God pursues. And we see that immediately after the fall, right? Right after Adam and Eve ate from the tree, what did Adam and Eve do? They, what did they do? They hid, and God pursued. Genesis 3.8 they heard the sound of the Lord God and hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God has continued pursuing man with the gospel throughout all human history. Think of some of the common metaphors that we use for the gospel to communicate God's pursuit. We say that the gospel is a call to salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he called you He's pursuing you. He called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to be part of his kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. One of the more common metaphors for the gospel or for God's pursuit is that of a wedding that he invites us to. Think of the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22.1. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. We see him pursuing people, but they would not come. Again, he sent more servants saying, tell those who were invited. It goes on, go to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. When we're in Luke 15, which is the, contains the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep. There's a shepherd who pursues that lost sheep. There is a woman who pursues that lost coin. And all of these are illustrations of God pursuing us, lost sinners. Think of the way, or perhaps if you're like me, the ways that God has pursued you. Maybe it was through a friendly neighbor who shared the gospel with you or who invited you to church. Maybe it's through a gospel tract that you picked up. When the Gideons come, they share about individuals and the dramatic ways that they heard the gospel, but really those are all manifestations of God pursuing people and bringing them to himself. Maybe it's through a co-worker, which was the case for me. It was fellow teachers, heard my brother had died of a drug overdose, who invited me to church, and I heard the gospel there. Maybe, and I hope the 
Children will pay attention to this. Maybe it was through the Christian family that God has graciously chosen to put you in. And I do hope that none of the children would take for granted that out of all of the families that they could have been placed in, that if you find yourself in a Christian family, you're experiencing one of God's greatest graces that many others do not. Whatever the case, these are all ways that God pursues us, that he is calling us through the gospel, that he is inviting us to be part of his kingdom. Now this morning, as we continue this parable that we started last week, the parable of the vineyard owner, I believe it's one of the most dramatic illustrations of God pursuing people in all of Scripture. We see that God sends a servant, then he sends another servant, then he sends another servant, and then finally he sends his son as he pursues these tenants. Let me remind you of the context for this parable. The religious leaders just finished questioning Jesus' authority. Jesus responds to their questioning, not actually responding to the religious leaders, but responding to the people. He preaches this parable not to the religious leaders, but to the people to warn the people about the religious leaders. Look at verse 9, Luke 20, verse 9. Jesus began to tell the people this parable, that there was a man who planted a vineyard. He let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Like we talked about last week, this was a common farming arrangement in Jesus' day, especially around Galilee. There would be vast estates owned by foreigners who lived far away. They would lease out the land to local tenants who would care for the land. We know from our sermon last Sunday in Isaiah 5, so if you remember last Sunday's sermon, we started on Isaiah 5 because that gave the background to this parable. Jesus' Jewish listeners, who would be familiar with Isaiah 5, would know that the owner is God the Father and the vineyard itself is Israel. The context then tells us that the tenants are the religious leaders, and that would be new for this morning. So the vineyard owner is God the Father, the vineyard itself is Israel, the tenants would be the religious leaders. And so think of it like this. The tenants are supposed to physically care for the vineyard like the religious leaders were supposed to spiritually care for Israel. The owner returns to his home, but there would be this understanding that he would then later, more than likely through servants that he sent, which is what happened in the future, go to the vineyard to receive fruit. And we see that in verse 10. When the time came, he sent a ser- the owner, vineyard owner sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, beat this servant, and sent him away empty-handed. Now, who do you- now we're introduced to another individual in this story. Who do the servants that are sent to the tenants represent? Or who do the servants who were sent to Israel represent? The prophets, that's exactly right, Old Testament prophets. The tenants are religious leaders. They did not buy the vineyard. They did not plant the vineyard. They were allowed to work the vineyard because of the owner's generosity. But they wickedly turned against him. Now, here's the truth. And I want you to begin following me on this train of thought that we could very easily miss because we tend to read through verses quickly. The truth is that it would have been hard for Jesus' listeners to believe that tenants would respond this way to a servant being sent from the vineyard owner to them to get fruit. The very worst the tenants would do is refuse to provide the expected fruit. 
Just imagine a servant is sent to the tenants, and if they've done a poor or mediocre job with the vineyard and they don't have the fruit, perhaps they make excuses, perhaps they shift blame, perhaps they talk about the weather or trials they've experienced in their lives that prevent them from providing the harvest that the vineyard owner is expecting. But it would have seemed pretty outrageous or hard to believe that the vineyard owners or that the tenants would actually beat the servant that was sent to them and then send him back empty-handed. The parable gets even harder to believe when we see how the owner responds. Look in verse 11. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Now again, here's what we do. We read this and we say, okay, the vineyard owner sent one servant, he gets beaten, and so then the vineyard owner sends a second servant. But just think for a moment about how much sense this makes or how much sense this doesn't make. Briefly, if we put ourselves in the vineyard odor's place, consider what we would not do and what we would do. Assuming he's a wealthy landowner, more than likely, he probably, if he's wealthy enough, to own land some distance away, then more than likely he's also wealthy enough to have some servants that live in his home with him, which was a common arrangement in the ancient world. If he was as wealthy as Abraham was, if you remember this, when Abraham's nephew Lot was captured, Abraham had his own standing army. Abraham was able to tell his men, strap on your swords and let's go rescue my nephew Lot. And so if this vineyard owner was as, as wealthy as Abraham and perhaps had his own standing army like Abraham did, he could take his servants that were in his home with him, or he could take his own standing army. He could travel to his vineyard and do what with those tenants? Let's just say teach him a lesson, right? I mean, that's what we would expect. That'd be a reasonable response. Another reasonable response is the vineyard owner would go to the authorities, Listen to this, Luke 12, 13. You don't have to turn there. Jesus is teaching. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, I'm assuming angrily, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So this man believed that he had experienced an injustice. He felt justified while Jesus was teaching in interrupting him and then telling Jesus to resolve this case for him. Jesus responds basically by saying, I did not come to this earth to settle these sorts of disputes. I came for spiritual reasons, not to serve as a judge that you might find in a courtroom or to serve as those sorts of authorities. You need to go to the right authorities to help. But the point is this. There were authorities that people would go to when they experienced injustices. This man confused Jesus with those authorities, but he still knew that you go to authorities with these types of injustices. In this case, his claim that his brother had ripped him off. There's a whole parable about a widow going to the correct authorities. She goes to a judge. She's the persistent widow who keeps bugging this judge about the injustice that she's experienced. Luke 18.3, a widow in the city coming to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. So the point is, the vineyard owner could have done the same. There were authorities that you could go to when you have experienced an injustice, like, for example, being a vineyard owner and the tenants beat up the servant that you send there. That's what we would expect them to do. Now, what would we not expect the vineyard owner to do? What would you not do, huh? Send 
a second servant. Not surprisingly, the second servant ends up being beaten and treated shamefully as well. Now, the treatment that the second servant received was worse than the treatment that the first servant received. I'm assuming it means that the second servant was also mocked and ridiculed. So now that the owner has seen that the tenants are going to beat the first servant he sends and the second servant he sends, this is when the vineyard owner sends his standing army to teach them a lesson or goes himself with his tenants or his servants, or this is when he goes to the authorities, right? Look at verse 12. He sent yet a third. Not surprisingly, this one also they wounded and cast out. And why am I emphasizing this to you? Do you see how well this demonstrates God's desire to do what with his people? Just think of the lesson. To pursue them very dramatically. One commentator pointed out that the, woo, the word, excuse me, for wounded in verse 12 means grievously wounded. He was beaten even worse than the previous two servants. And it says they cast him out. Some Bibles, such as the NIV and NASB and the Amplified, say that they threw him out. So the imagery is probably that they beat him so badly that he was unable to walk, and then they dragged him to the border of the vineyard or the estate and then cast him out or just threw him off the property and expected him to, I suppose, drag himself home. They treated him like they would treat trash. So do you see how these servants picture very well what? What do these servants picture very well? As they should. That's what they're supposed to represent. The Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets who were repeatedly sent to the people of Israel and mistreated. God kept sending them to the Jews, but the Jews kept abusing them. We wouldn't believe it if it wasn't recorded for us, but at whose hands did the Old Testament prophets experience the worst mistreatment, Jews or Gentiles? Jews. In fact, I was thinking about it, and the one Old Testament prophet who at least we have no record of him experiencing any mistreatment, was Jonah, who was sent to Gentiles, Nineveh. Exactly. So it seems if you're an Old Testament prophet, if you were fortunate, God would send you to Gentiles, like Ninevites, who are known for their incredible violence. But if you're unfortunate, then God would send you to the Jews. The prophet Jeremiah, lots of verses I could share with you. I'll read just a few of them. The prophet Jeremiah told the Jews, Jeremiah 2.30, your children took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravenous lion. So the Jews devoured their prophets like a lion would devour its prey when the Jews returned from exile in Babylon. Nehemiah prayed to God, Nehemiah 9.26, the Jews were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. When Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, he said, Matthew 23, 34, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify. You'll flog them in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. When Stephen rebuked the religious leaders, Acts 7, 52, he said, which of the prophets did your fathers 
not persecute, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Referring to the prophets, that's what the prophets did. They announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, referring to Jesus. And so Stephen says, when he's trying to get the religious leaders to recognize that they rejected Christ because they have a history of rejecting Christ, he points out that they slaughtered the prophets that were sent to them to bring them to repentance. Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 2.15, the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. So it's very fitting for these servants who were sent to the vineyard or to Israel to be, to be mistreated or persecuted this way. Now consider this. As the owner continues to send servant after servant after servant to the vineyard, the way that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, it says much about the tenants and their rebelliousness and stubbornness. Do you see how most of these verses are about the stiff-necked wickedness of the tenants who beat and persecute the servants that are sent to them? But if you look beyond that, what does this parable say even more about? I would say the vineyard owner. I think that this parable does tell us about the tenants, but even more, we are to think about the vineyard owner himself who was willing to send tenant or servant after servant after servant. And this brings us to lesson two. God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. We have, I've heard someone say early in my Christian life, they called it Christianese. It's that language that we become very accustomed to as Christians. And I remember becoming a Christian and I'm introduced to all of these words that I'd never heard before, like justification, sanctification, propitiation. Even the word righteousness was used in a very different way after I became a Christian. And long-suffering is one of those words. If you talk about someone, can you ever remember a time in your life well, if you weren't a Christian, that you described them as long-suffering. I can't. And I've never really heard unbelievers ever use the word long-suffering. So it's one of those words that's not in our common vernacular, but we're used to it because of the Bible. Let's just talk about what it means. The closest English word would be the word patient. The Greek word for long-suffering, it is a compound word. Even in, the, even in Greek, it is two Greek words, mark, ra, thumis, and are the two Greek words for long and for temper. So the Greek word for long-suffering is made up of the two Greek words for long and for temper. It doesn't mean that God loses his temper for a long time. It means that it takes a long time for God to lose his temper. We might commonly say that someone has a very long fuse. It takes a while before they get upset or blow their top. The idea is God is willing to suffer long before getting angry. Now, we definitely see God's long-suffering nature, or we see his long fuse in this passage. In fact, I would argue that we might see God's long-suffering nature or long fuse in this passage or parable better than most other places in all of Scripture. 
He sends servant, sends a second servant, sends the third servant who continue all of them to be mistreated, and the vineyard owner never loses his temper with those tenants. Now, before I started studying this parable two weeks ago, because I'm familiar with it, I approached it with a certain understanding, but I don't think that at the time I realized just how much this parable beautifully demonstrates God's mercy and compassion. The more time that I've spent studying it over the last few weeks, the clearer it has become just how beautifully this parable reveals God's patient, incredibly patient, or long-suffering heart to reach lost people. The owner sends one servant who gets beaten by the tenants, but the owner doesn't punish the tenants. Instead, he sends a second servant. The second servant beaten by the tenants, but the owner still does not punish the tenants. He sends a third servant. The third servant beaten by the tenants, but the owner still doesn't punish the tenants. Now, before we read what the owner does next, I want to illustrate what's happening by reminding you of something that we've seen before. Go ahead and turn a few chapters to the left to Luke 15. I try not to have you turn around or turn around, turn too much in Scripture. I don't like to spend my time preaching, waiting for pages to be turned or for people to find places. But because there's a few chapters to the left, we can look. Luke 15, 11, the familiar parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of the two sons said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And shockingly, the father divided his property between them, or gave his inheritance to this son. Now, if you remember when we went through this parable, this is an absurd response from the father. Jesus's listeners and you don't have to live in Jesus's day to know this. There's no reasonable earthly father in our day who would respond to a selfish, immature, rebellious son this way. When your selfish, immature, rebellious son comes and asks for a bunch of money, you don't give him a bunch of money, right? Because you know he might ruin his life with it or perhaps ruin other people's lives, which is what happened to this son. So people would have been shocked by the son's request to get the inheritance before the father died because it would have been communicating that the son wished his father was dead. But Jesus's listeners would have been even more shocked by the father's response in giving this inheritance to his son. It would have been unbelievable. So why would Jesus preach something that's absurd or unbelievable? For the same reason that Jesus always preached things that sounded absurd or unbelievable, Hate your mother and father, camel going through the eye of a needle, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, because hyperbole or exaggeration was Jesus' way of driving a point home or making sure that we don't miss what he's trying to teach. No earthly father would do this, but the father in the parable doesn't represent an earthly father. He represents God the Father. God the Father who's willing to extend freedom that can be taken advantage of and used sinfully. So there's a father in this parable who extends freedom to this son that can be taken advantage of and used sinfully. The father in the parable gives the son what he wants, even to the son's detriment. We can tell before we read even further in the parable that the son is going to waste this money because God the father is willing to give us what we want even to our own detriment. That's what it is to be a free moral agent. You can use the freedom or liberty God's given you in sinful ways. 
Okay, now hold on to that and now turn back to Luke 20. And I'll connect the dots. I'll say it like this. Just as much as the parable of the prodigal son reveals a father acting absurdly or outrageously, the parable of the vineyard owner records a father, the vineyard owner, acting outrageously or absurdly, exhibiting the same sort of behavior that would cause Jesus' listeners to gasp or doubt the reality of what's being taught. Because look in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, two things about this are absolutely shocking. Here's the first thing that's shocking. The owner, well, let me ask you, does the owner at this point seem angry toward the tenants no he doesn't that's not a trick question does the owner of the vineyard seem angry toward the tenants who have mistreated or persecuted his servants this way no he doesn't that is shocking any vineyard owner would be upset at tenants by this point if we look at the owner's words not only is there not anger or hostility there's actually concern If I had to describe the way the vineyard owner's words sound, he sounds concerned about the tenants. He says, what shall I do? How can I reach them? They haven't listened to any of my servants yet. So my point is, even after all of the tenants' rebelliousness and wickedness, the vineyard owner himself still has immense concern for those tenants great compassion toward them much more than i'm sure i would show so talk about pursuing in a very long-suffering way now the second and i would say most obvious shocking part of this parable is the vineyard owner says i have an idea i know what i will do i will send my son to them And it doesn't seem shocking to us at first because we read through verses quickly. We don't imagine what we might do in those situations. We just say, if this is what God's word says, then this is true. And we should say that, but we can fail to appreciate the significance of what we're reading. But if you pause for a moment and you consider what you're reading, it is completely shocking. There is no earthly father who would send his son to check on tenants who previously beat the servants that had been sent to them. In fact, if you think about it, if the vineyard owner was going to send someone else, and we've already reached a level of absurdity with the vineyard owner sending three servants, but hypothetically, if he was going to send a fourth person, the very last person he would send, knowing what those tenants did with the previous servants, is send his son i mean that's who you would keep as far away from the tenants as possible why would jesus preach something that is so absurd 
and unbelievable. Because it pictured exactly what God the Father was willing to do with Israel or the religious leaders. Listen to the way my pulpit commentary explains this. It says, the parable itself is an improbable one. The conduct of the tenants, the long-suffering of the vineyard owner, his last act in sending his beloved and only son, all this makes up a history without parallel in human experience. Yet this is an exact sketch of what did actually take place in the eventful story of Israel. So in other words, the vineyard owner's actions have no historical basis or parallel in reality. Or in other words, we can't find any history that would support a vineyard owner ever acting this way. Now, much of the parable, like all of Jesus's parables, does have a historical basis. I mean, when Jesus teaches the parable of the sower, there were sowers who walked around throwing seed, right? When he teaches the parable of the persistent widow, there were people that persistently went to judges. And in this parable, there's a, per, there's a historical basis for a vineyard owner leasing out his estate to tenants who are going to tend it. But then it just goes off the rails with this absurd approach from the vineyard owner to send his son. The pulpit commentary is making the point that there is no historical record of a vineyard owner ever repeatedly sending servants that are mistreated and then finally his own beloved son. There's no historical basis for it if you look at it physically, perfect historical basis if we look at it spiritually because the vineyard owner doesn't represent any earthly father he represents our heavenly father and as we can tell by the language in the verse in particular the words my beloved son look at the verse look at the way the father talks he says i know what i'll do i will send them my beloved son is that familiar language to us at Jesus's baptism, Matthew 3, 17, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased at the transfiguration. Luke 9, 35, a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So Jesus's listeners who have familiarity with his earthly ministry would know that he is in view when he talks, tells this parable and talks about the beloved son of the vineyard owner. So now, how do the tenants respond to even this incredible demonstration of love and patience and long-suffering? Or in other words, would they actually go so far as to beat the vineyard owner's son like they beat the servants? I mean, it's one thing to beat the servants, but what would they do with the owner's son? They wouldn't beat him too, would they? Look at verse 14. When the tenants saw him, they said to himself, this is the heir, let us kill him. Not even, we're, not, we've, we're not talking beating, we're not talking persecution, we're not talking mocking, ridiculing, we've moved way beyond that. Those are all things Jesus experienced. We've moved way beyond that now to murder. So that let's murder him so the inheritance may be ours. And they drew him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then pause here. So the tenants... Their wickedness it reaches this all-time high with this decision and it represents the religious leader as well we have seen numerous times as jesus was approaching jerusalem and has now entered jerusalem that the religious leaders have been doing exactly this sort of plotting to murder the son of god 
So what could the tenants have been thinking? Well, interestingly, numerous commentaries do make a point that there is somewhat of a historical basis for what we're reading here. Because under certain circumstances, if the owner of a vineyard died and he did not have an heir, guess where that estate or that vineyard would go? To the tenants, that's right. Without an heir, whoever was first to claim the estate, which would typically be the, atten- the tenants, and this makes sense, they're the ones who are familiar with it, have been living there and working there, would go to them. So they do, ironically, say something that had some basis in reality. I guess their suspicion is, if we murder him and he doesn't have an heir, then we can receive this. And you see that the way they talk supports this. In the verse, they said, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they did believe that if there was no heir, that they could receive this inheritance. Notice that even though they knew he was the owner's son, though, they did not refer to him that way. They said, this is the heir. This is the man that the inheritance is supposed to go to. They don't refer to him as the son, but they do want what belongs to him. Now, do you see when the tenants are looking at the vineyard owner's son or looking at Jesus, that the tenants representing the religious leaders want what belongs to the son? Does that make sense? Or let me say it like this. Were the tenants or the religious leaders jealous or envious of Jesus? Yes, it makes sense for the tenants to resemble the religious leaders because the religious leaders were jealous or envious of Jesus, in particular, the praise, the adoration of man that they were receiving. Do you remember what Pilate said when Jesus was before him? Why was Pilate hesitant, besides the fact that Jesus was innocent, to turn Jesus over to the Jews? Because even Pilate, in all of his ungodliness, recognized that Jesus was being brought to him simply because the religious leaders were jealous. Here's the verse, Matthew 27, 18. Pilate knew that it was out of envy or jealous that the religious leader delivered Jesus up. Okay, now, let's think. Because the vineyard owner has been so patient up to this point, we've seen no hint of hostility or anger toward the tenants for mistreating the servants. When the tenants respond this way and murder the vineyard owner's son, can we expect him to respond similarly? Can we expect further patience or long-suffering from the vineyard owner? Look at the rest of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to the tenants? Verse 16, he will come and he will destroy those tenants. And you can pause right there. We'll finish the rest of this verse next week. There's too much, to, too much in the rest of the verse to finish in this sermon. So here's what I see. The vineyard owner looked incredibly long-suffering up to this moment. So I stand by my earlier lesson that the vineyard owner looked long-suffering, or I stand by my earlier lesson that God is long-suffering, But this parable also reveals that God's long-suffering has limits, and this brings us to lesson three. God's long-suffering comes to an end. God's long-suffering comes to an end. So, I mean, talk about a 180. Talk about a reversal. The vineyard owner, 
just went from, I will send one servant and another and another. That didn't work. What shall I do? How can I reach the tenants? Because they haven't listened to any servants yet. Oh, I know I will send my son from that to, I'm going to destroy those tenants. So the point is God is long-suffering. There's much that he can put up with, but there is a point at which his long-suffering comes to an end. Or let me say it like this, there is definitely something that God does not put up with, and that is the rejection of his son. So there's much you can do in your life. Have you ever heard people say, I don't know if God could forgive me? You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've been. You can safely tell people that no matter what they've done, God can forgive it, except for one thing. God can be long-suffering with anything you can do to him, against him, except for one thing, and that is reject his son. That's when his long-suffering ends. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, destroy those tenants. You can draw a line and you can write Psalm 212. So one more time, if you write in your Bibles, you can circle the words, destroy those tenants. You can draw a line. You can write Psalm 212, which says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me read that one more time. Psalm 212, kiss the son, and it's not S-U-N, it's S-O-N capitalized, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this verse captures one of the main points of the parable of the vineyard owner. You better honor the vineyard owner's son. If you reject him, as Psalm 212 says, you're going to perish in the way or his wrath is going to be kindled against you. Now think about this. The religious leaders, because really this is a parable warning the people to keep it in context about the religious leaders. And the religious leaders were so convinced God was pleased with them. The religious leaders were so proud, they believed they were God's greatest servants. The religious leaders pretty much thought God must be more pleased with us than the rest of the Jews combined. Jesus preaches this parable about them to warn people that by rejecting Jesus, the religious leaders were causing God to feel the same way toward the religious leaders that the vineyard owners felt or the vineyard owner felt toward the tenants, that he wanted to destroy them. And so in other words, the person who rejects Christ or rejects the son brings the same wrath against them that the, that the tenants were going to experience for rejecting Christ. It would have been shocking to Jesus' listeners. Most of them probably believe nobody was better than the religious leaders, but it does drive home for us just how God feels about anyone rejecting Jesus. So if that's you, if I talk about this, and you're listening, I mean, I didn't put this in my notes, but it comes to mind. If you sit here today, you're the only, you're the only one who knows what you've done with Jesus. I don't know. People can come to church and look a certain way. People don't typically come to church talking about whether they've rejected Jesus or not. You know, people don't walk in the door and you say, hey, how are you doing today? And they say, oh, I'm doing fine. Tell me about yourself. Well, I've rejected Jesus, right? We don't know that about people. You're the only one who knows in the privacy of your own heart what goes on between you and Christ. You're the only one who knows whether you've surrendered your life to him or not. 
or whether you're living in rebellion to him. And so I would just say, don't sit under a sermon like this. Don't come to church where God graciously preaches the gospel to you through his word, reveals what you need to do with his son, which is to receive him, to repent and believe, and then leave the same way that you came, because your accountability is incredibly high. It's much higher than those people who didn't come to church at all today and hear a message like this. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some call slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, and this is why. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is long-suffering, but that's why, so that we can repent and be saved. Do not presume on God's mercy or take it for granted. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service, and I'd consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you. Father, I thank you for this parable. I thank you for the way that you graciously warned the people in Jesus' day and warn us in our day about the consequences of rejecting Christ. I also thank you about for what is revealed of your heart, your compassion and mercy, your long-suffering nature as shown through the vineyard owner. We know no earthly vineyard owner would act this way, and so we thank you that you are not like any earthly vineyard owner, that you are much more merciful and long-suffering than that. And so I just thank you for that, this, this insight into your heart for the lost as shown through this parable. Lord, and I would pray if there would be anyone here today who has rejected Christ up to this point, that this would be the day that they would be convicted, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, grant them repentance and faith in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.